ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. I think this is the piece of evidence. How does a gun go off accidentally? Can it go off accidentally? During your interview with him directly, did you ask him whether or not the gun was in single action or double action at the time that it discharged? Did you ask him that? No, I didn't believe it was a relevant question. Why not? The trigger was pulled. That I'm certain of. Whether it was in single or double action to me, it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, finally, don't call me your worship again. Okay? All right. Thank you. And on the 16th day, the prosecution rested. Yes, the Tex McIver murder trial came back last week from spring break, tanned, rested, and ready. And the state wrapped up its case. All told, it called more than 70 witnesses, rolled a hospital gurney with a mannequin on it into the courtroom, erected a full-size replica of the interior of the Ford Expedition, piled dozens of Texas guns on a table in front of the jurors, brought in a dummy with holes in it to illustrate the bullet's path. And then, Chief Assistant District Attorney Clint Rucker said the words many, many people were eager to hear him say. Um, at this time, um, the state of Georgia would rest his case. We're going to take a look at what the state rested on, and we're going to let you know what charges Judge Robert McBurney dismissed from the case after the prosecution rested. And then we're going to tell you about some surprises the defense had in store, including, yes, the mysterious masseuse. Annie Anderson. But first, a quick glimpse of Tex McIver in an unguarded moment. Dr. Marty Sellers, a surgeon at Emory, was called by the state to testify about Diane McIver's last hours. Here's the setup. Dr. Sellers and Dr. Blaine Syed, having pronounced the patient dead, went out to the waiting room to tell Tex McIver his wife had just passed away. The testimony that follows was allowed by Judge McBurney on the condition the jury did not see Dr. Syed or know that he is a person of color. That would be too prejudicial, McBurney ruled. So that gives you an idea of what's coming. Here's Dr. Sellers. Dr. Syed um, took the lead and said, you know, please, Mr. MacGyver, have a seat. And he was pointing to this chair here. And Mr. MacGyver, basically before the sentence was able to uh, be finished, he said, don't tell me what to do, boy. Which was um, not, not in a, a threatening way, but in an aggressive way, I would say. So there's that. I mean, in many ways, the prosecution's case against Tex McIver can be summed up like this. 
death by a thousand cuts. Let's take a look at the tail end of the state's case. The prosecution waited until the end to put up two PR guys Tex had retained to repair his shattered image and help his case. Yes, they were state's witnesses. So Tex hired two PR people to improve the spin on his incredibly damaged reputation. And they wound up testifying against him. First came Bill Crane, an old politico. Crane has been a spokesman for politicians and a panelist on a local TV show. He knows his way around a microphone. He even said so to the deputy when he took the stand. Yes, sir, if you will, have a seat. Get as close to the mic as you can. I'm familiar with microphones. Oh, I'm glad you are. After one break, when Crane re-entered the courtroom and passed the TV camera, he looked into the lens, smiled, and waved. I'm not making this up. He actually did that in a murder trial. Crane says he and Tex were old friends. He volunteered to handle PR for Tex as the news coverage turned from a trickle to a torrent. He said he did it for free, so MacIver may have gotten what he paid for. Here is the next thing I'm not making up. As a savvy PR guy, Crane spread the word that Tex had become alarmed that night because Black Lives Matter protesters might be lurking outside his SUV. Yes, white guy shoots wife, blames black people. Crane testified that he really didn't see a problem with that at the time. And he still doesn't. Before we get to that, let's have Crane break it down for us. Here's where Tex came up with the disastrous notion that Black Lives Matter led him to take up his revolver. He became concerned about passersby. He was concerned knowing of unrest that had occurred in Atlanta over that weekend. Um, there were three protests in Atlanta by Black Lives Matter's protesters across the street from their condominium around Lenox Plaza that shut down the mall and all of its entrances and exits for five hours the Saturday evening prior. The demonstrations got a great deal of news coverage, as well they should, and MacIver was paying attention, Crane said. Mr. MacIver, again a friend, is a news junkie. He was aware of the unrest in Atlanta and concerned about that. So as they exited and he saw the people milling about and he felt threatened, wasn't sure if these were Black Lives Matters protesters, carjackers, or homeless people. He seems to be indicating that it's hard to tell the difference. Carjackers, though, don't carry signs and don't march much. Homeless people generally don't steal cars at gunpoint. Crane said he prepared his statements and ran them past Tex. Tex liked them, he said. So, Crane gave them to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and to the Daily Report, which covers Atlanta's legal scene. I read them to Mr. MacGyver, as well as sending him the links the next morning. He was satisfied and pleased and thought at the time that those stories would be helpful to his case. Of course, all hell broke loose. The story went viral for just the reasons you'd think. Now Texas law firm and his defense lawyers are furious. The story was evolving nationally sort of into rich white guy kills wife and for fear of Black Lives Matter protesters. Dang, who could have predicted that? My phone was blowing up, Texas phone was blowing up. The firm told Mr. MacGyver they were losing business and had lost a client engagement, I believe in Los Angeles. I was contacted by the firm to take down their name off of my firm's website as a former client threatened with legal action if I did not do so in 24 hours. Tex, who originally thought the Black Lives Matter reference would help him, now gets the idea that maybe it wasn't so smart. And my lawyers are telling me this Black Lives Matter comment is killing me. He said that to you? Yes. 
So what did you say back to him? I said, I'm sorry. I certainly didn't take any of this on to help you, to hurt you, or to help hurt your legal case. I told him then and subsequently several times in addition, if you subtract the fear of unrest and what occurred the night prior in Atlanta, sort of erase the board, if you will, of any reference to the Black Lives Matters protesters, which also the week prior in Charlotte had become violent in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a state of emergency was declared, um, a protester was killed um, in lower downtown Charlotte, a nice part of downtown Charlotte. Um, then what you have left is Mr. MacGyver being afraid of homeless people. And it struck me that if you were just afraid of homeless people in Atlanta, based on history, you probably wouldn't need your gun. Wow. So if you weren't being threatened by those Black Lives Matter people, you had no reason to call up Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson. Now, Crane says, Tex wants to take it back. The question and request of me initially was, I need some help here, this is really hurting me, Black Lives Matter comment. Then it became, you know, Bill, I'm not, I'm not sure I said that. Are you sure I said that? I'm not sure I said that. And then it became, I didn't say that. Could you retract what you said? Could you take it back? Crane then lets MacGyver know he won't do that. And initially on the phone, I told him, and in person later, face to face, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. So he explains why he's honor bound to tell the truth. What he doesn't explain is why, as a savvy PR guy, he ever made such statements to the media. Why he didn't look Tex in the eye and say, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You want to take this terrible situation and inject race into it? No. He didn't say that. Crane testified that Tex continued to ask him to take back the Black Lives Matter business, even at Diane's memorial service at Corey headquarters, where Crane said Tex guided him into a conference room. He looked very fatigued, and obviously he'd been under a lot of stress. And the gist of the conversation was, I need you to fall on your sword. I need you to take back what you said regarding Black Lives Matter. And can you tell the jurors what was your response? You did say it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it's caused so much misery. I'm sorry that it's really... I, I was very clear then and multiple times since. There are challenges with the night, the case. I don't think this is one of the bigger ones. Crane says Tex tried again at lunch at a restaurant near Texas Condo. Crane turned him down yet again. Now it's Don Samuel's turn. The defense attorney cross-examines the PR guy, and the PR guy says he never understood what was wrong with invoking Black Lives Matter. Here's Samuel. The Black Lives Matter protest, by the way, when he said that to you, did you think, oh, that's a terribly racist thing to say? No, and I still don't. I mean, I realize a lot of people think I'm crazy for not seeing it that way, but I didn't then and I don't now. Crane said he initially thought the Black Lives Matter comment was a small part of the story. But it went viral, didn't it? It certainly did. It went ballistic, didn't it? It exploded. Good Morning America showed up on my parents' front yard looking for me, and I don't live there. And now we find out that it's become a racial story, correct? It did become a racial story. And now it's in the Tokyo newspaper. Now it's in the Toronto newspaper. Every continent on earth is now writing newspaper stories about this racial incident in Atlanta, Georgia. I didn't see anything in the Antarctica press, but I'm pretty sure everywhere else. 
And it was all because of what you said. Correct? It was it was my remarks taken out of context. Completely out of context. Yes. How bad did it get? Because of the Black Lives Matter reference and the racial elements of the story, people were essentially saying things like off with his head, cut his nutsack, pardon me, ladies, in social media, not in the news media. But, and it was getting louder, if you will, if you've ever been in a political conversation on Facebook, it gets out of hand. It was that times 10, times 10, times 10. Having beat the racism question to a pulp, Samuel has Crane make an important point. Nothing that you did had anything to do with talking to police, the district attorney's office, or a court. That is correct. We'll be right back. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The second PR guy is Jeff Dickerson. He took Crane's place as the person who publicly represented Tex. My name is Jeff Dickerson, and I am a crisis communications consultant. Uh, it is uh, someone who helps people who are facing media or uh, some sort of crisis or challenge in the court of public opinion. Dickerson is a former newspaper guy. He once worked at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He worked mostly on the editorial board, and I have to disclose, he worked with my dad before he retired from the AJC. And Dickerson worked at the paper when I was there. In December 2016, Dickerson got a message from a woman who worked for Tex. She told him they were looking for a consultant who could deal with the media barrage. Dickerson also had something else going for him. He'd known Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard for many years and considered him to be a friend. In January 2017, Dickerson signed a deal to serve as a spokesman for Tex. It was worth $3,000 a month plus a $7,500 retainer. He was paid about $31,500, with most of the checks being drawn on Diane's estate. Dickerson recalled one of his earliest meetings with Tex. There had been some discussion of how to get the charges dropped or reduced, and having heard his story, I suggested that I might be able to help with that because I knew Mr. Howard and would be able to reach out to him. The charges at the time, I believe, were involuntary manslaughter and reckless conduct or something of that sort. And having heard his story and seeing his remorse, I offered to communicate that to Mr. Howard. So MacIver, Dickerson, and MacIver's lawyer, Steve Maples, were at Maples' law office. All of a sudden, Maples steps out, leaving the two of them alone. He said that he would offer a bonus if I was able to make that happen, and that it would be okay with him, I think were his words, if I shared that with others. And I asked for clarification uh, because I thought that he might have some other communications team or others working on this project. Um, and in seeking that clarification, it became clear to me that he was making reference to the district attorney. Dickerson says success fees are not uncommon in his business. Get the job done, get a bonus. To tell the jurors is asking you to share your success fee with an elected public official like Mr. Howard, unusual. It's unheard of. Dickerson took the moral high ground. And when it became clear to me that he was talking about sharing 
money with the district attorney. I told him that under no uncertain terms that I would never make such an offer to the district attorney and he would never accept it. Dickerson said he sent Howard a text saying he wanted to talk about his new client. Howard texted back asking who the client was. Dickerson told him, Tex. Then, crickets. I received no response at all. Can you tell the jury, did you communicate that to the defendant? Yes. I meant to inform the client that the DA is not going to engage with me on this effort and that that was an intentional thing, not an oversight. What was his response? Disappointment. Try again. Did you try again? I did not try again. I got the message loud and clear the first time. Months later, Dickerson runs into Howard at a Hawks game and says he no longer represents Tex. Then, this past January, Dickerson got a call from Howard's office. The DA wanted to get together for lunch. There's been no explanation why this meeting occurred. Was Howard fishing for dirt on Tex? If so, he got some. Clint Rucker asks Dickerson if he told Howard about what Tex said about sharing the bonus. Did you tell I did. Rucker then shows Dickerson one last $3,000 check he received from Diane's estate. It was dated March 7, 2017, almost two months after he threw Tex under the bus. On cross, defense attorney Don Samuel makes the point that MacGyver didn't ever mention Paul Howard during the conversation about sharing the bonus. He says you can share the money with anybody you want to, right? And you ask for clarification, right? Correct. He didn't say to you, offer Paul Howard money, did he? No. He didn't say, tell Paul Howard there's money in this for him. He'll dismiss the charges. He did not say those words. His words left me with the distinct impression that he was asking me to share this amorphous success fee with Paul Howard. I hadn't offered to reach out to anyone but one person, and that was Paul Howard. That's the impression you formed? That's correct. Huh? That's correct. And Samuel got Dickerson to acknowledge he didn't report what Tex said to him to Tex's lawyers or to authorities at the time. You didn't rip out the contract? I did not. You didn't say, take your money and go drop dead, I'm not going to represent you anymore? I did not. You didn't tell the lawyers I'm going to have nothing more to do with this case? I did not. You didn't have any problem accepting the $7,500 and the $3,000 a month for the next five or six or seven months, however many it was? That's correct. The prosecution's last witness was Dr. Michael Henninger, a Fulton County medical examiner. He was the witness who passed the red rod through the holes in the mannequin. This was interesting. If the gun had been fired from Texas lap, you'd expect the bullet to take an upward path or maybe stay on a horizontal line, right? But the bullet actually traveled on a downward path. That is, the entrance wound was higher on the body than the exit wound. There could be an explanation for this. There's no way to know how Diane was sitting. Was she reclining, leaning forward, sitting straight up? Or perhaps the explanation has nothing to do with Diane's position. Perhaps the explanation is that Tex wasn't holding the gun in his lap. 
So you'll recall that McIver was indicted on seven counts. Malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and three counts of influencing witnesses. After the state rests, the defense almost always makes a request for a directed verdict. In other words, judge, the state has so clearly failed to meet its burden of proof that these charges shouldn't even be considered by the jury. You should dismiss those charges right now. McBurney denied the motion to dismiss the murder charge, but he said he wanted to hear argument on the three influencing witness charges. To briefly recap those charges, the indictment said Tex illegally influenced a witness when he told Danny Joe at Emory Hospital to tell police she wasn't in the car. That's count five. Count six is where Tex told spokesman Bill Crane to retract the Black Lives Matter protest comment. And count seven, that's the voicemail message Tex left on Danny Joe's husband's phone, the one he asked to be deleted. Arguing that count, Samuel quotes the exact wording in the indictment. It says, by leaving a voicemail statement with Patricia Diane Carter's husband, Thomas Carter, wherein the defendant implied in said voicemail statement that Patricia Carter ceased communicating her recollections of facts and circumstances of the death to law enforcement officers. It had nothing to do with law enforcement officers. It had nothing to do with ceasing communication. It was the pre precise 180 degree opposite. It was, go talk to these people. I need the public to be better informed. As for count six, prosecutors had argued, if Tex got Bill Crane to retract the Black Lives Matter comment to the news media, it would be read by law enforcement and prosecutors. This could give them a different take on the investigation, they said. Samuel said, shame on the DA's office if its representatives base some of their decisions on what they read in a newspaper. Seriously, if they're saying lying to the press, right? Lying to the press is a crime, then there's a lot of us who are in trouble. In the end, McBurney kept count five in the case and threw out count six and seven. Those two counts are gone, so Tex now faces five counts. This was a huge win for the defense. In such a high-profile case, you don't expect something like this to happen. Here's attorney Esther Panich, who's closely following the case. It's a big deal when the jury doesn't get to consider two counts that they were told that they will consider. And now the defendant has been found not guilty of those counts. As for the prosecution? So it's embarrassing. It's, you know, it's, it's not great. It's not a great reflection, but uh, they're professionals. They're going to lick their wounds and keep going. You know, they're, they're not going to have any time to wallow in it. They're, they have a murder trial to continue with. We'll be right back. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And now, it was the defense's turn. Your Honor, our next witness is Annie Anderson. Remember Annie Anderson, the masseuse? How the prosecution dropped hint after hint that she and Tex were sexually involved? Well... Anderson took the stand for the defense, and I gotta tell you, she was a strong, strong witness. To every question she was asked about whether she'd ever had sex with Tex, or had ever touched Tex in a sexual way, or whether Tex had ever touched her in a sexual way, she said, never. 
In fact, here's defense attorney Don Samuel trying to cover every possibility. Did you ever at any time, I'm talking about any time before Diane McGarver's death or after her death, either before September 2016 after September 2016, engaged in any sexual conduct, however you want to define it, with Tex McGuire. Never. Samuel tried to get Anderson to talk about what the prosecution's insinuations had done to her reputation. But before he could get the question out... Are you aware that the prosecution in this case has suggested well, another question? Has some comment in different, different questions. Yeah. This frustrated Samuel to no end. He told McBurney. Okay, the state introduced numerous witnesses that this witness was in the was in the bedroom the night after Diane McGuire died, went to the ranch, wore the boots, okay, and so now I can't ask any questions about the effect that those kinds of allegations have had on her and her family? Correct. You cannot. Not for this trial. Anderson said she's a massage therapist and a wellness coach. She said Diane had been her client for about 13 years, she charged $100 an hour for her services and said Diane would pay her to massage both her and Tex. She obviously cared deeply for Diane. Samuel made it a point to ask Anderson if her husband was in the courtroom. Yes, she said, and pointed him out. Samuel asked. Did you ever have a romantic relationship with Tex McIver? Never. Uh, did you ever perform a massage on him any time in the months following the death of his wife, Diane, which he was naked? 1,000% never. Did you ever touch him sexually? Never. Did he ever touch you sexually? Never. Anderson said almost every time she gave Tex a massage, he would fall asleep, and he'd do something unusual. He would have conversations in his sleep, and then depending on what he was saying, he would act things out, or he might just be quiet and all of a sudden flare an arm or kind of a punch or something like that, and I would have to get out of the way if I was close to his body in any way. Samuel asked Anderson when was the last time she heard from Diane. She said just before Diane died, she sent her a text asking her to confirm a massage appointment the following morning. The text was sent at 9.36 p.m., September 25th. Samuel asked her to read the text. I said, sorry. It's okay. Hey, Mama Di, I hope you had an awesome weekend. I wanted to confirm you for tomorrow morning around 7.30, question mark, love, Annie. So, Mama Di is the nickname you have for Diane? It's because my daughter considers her her godmother. Anderson found out about Diane's death from a friend that Monday morning. She said she threw up and started freaking out. Her friend drove to her home in Norcross, picked her up, and took her to the condo. Over the next few days, Anderson said, she kept watch on text because she was worried about what he might do to himself. Family friend Rachel Stiles, a former nurse, stayed there too. Did you let him drive anywhere by himself? No. Did you let him go anywhere by himself? No. Did you let him even go into a room by himself? Only the bathroom. Were you and Ms. Stiles, Rachel Stiles, concerned about Tex McIver's well-being? In many ways. Were you concerned about his safety? Yes. 
On the first night in the condo, Anderson said she sat on top of pillows with her back to the wall next to what had been Diane's side of the bed. Anderson said she spent the next two nights on the floor, too, with Tex and Diane's godson, Austin, sleeping in the bed. Did you get into the bed? Never. Did you have sexual relations with Tex McIver that night in the bed? 1,000% never. Did he ever take his clothes off? No. Did you ever take your clothes off? No. Remember what Danny Jo Carter testified about what she saw when she walked into Texas condo one day after Diane died? How she went into the master bedroom and found Tex lying on his back without a shirt on, getting a massage from Anderson? Never happened, Anderson said. <clears throat> on any of the nights that you were there, excuse me, any of the days or nights that you were there, did you in fact do a massage for Tex McCarthy? No. Anderson also recounted what Danny Joe told her what happened the night of the shooting. And it's similar to what Diane's former friend, Kathy Johansson, testified as to what she said Danny Joe told her. Remember what Kathy Johansson said on the stand? Here's a short clip. Wake up. Tex, wake up. You won't sleep tonight. Boom. And Diane said, Tex, what did you do? I've been shot. Here's what Anderson said Danny Joe told her. So Diane was yelling at Tex because he had been sleeping, and she was saying, when you get home, you're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to be up all night. You need to go. You need to stay awake so you can go to sleep. One of those in the courtroom gallery watching Anderson testify was Danny Joe. She was sitting between Billy Corey and his vice president, Jay Grover. In fact, they've been an almost constant presence in court since they testified. Anderson said she stayed with Tex in the Buckhead condo through the week. Anderson said she drove Tex around town because he wasn't supposed to drive because of the medication he was taking. She said yes, she was with him at Atlanta Police Headquarters when he was interviewed by Detective Darren Smith. She drove him home from APD. She also drove him to the ranch that weekend. Now about the Cracker Barrel boots the ones Jay Grover bought Diane as a Christmas present, the same ones he said he saw Anderson wearing at the ranch that weekend. Anderson said the boots she wore that day were a gift to her from Diane, and they couldn't have been Diane's boots because Diane had a much smaller foot. Can you fit into her boots? No. Were you wearing her boots that day, that Friday or Saturday when you were out there? No, sir. When it was his turn, Prosecutor Clint Rucker spent about an hour cross-examining Anderson. He started off with a question that could not have been more obvious. It would probably be a fair statement to just start this whole examination out with just um, the fact that this is probably a tough day for you, correct? Absolutely. Later, she told him why, in no uncertain terms. Some of the families that I work with have been more than disturbed about some of the things that have been said um, about me personally. Anderson let Rucker know that she had indeed touched Tex when he was sleeping that first night in the condo after Diane died. She called it a polarity rock. So it's a rocking motion that you literally jostle someone's body by pushing on a joint that opens up the nervous system and the spinal cord. Because he was having a nightmare and he was throwing his arms up in the air, I was afraid he was either going to hit the lamp next to him or something else. I don't know, but he, his arms were flailing around and he was having nightmares. Okay. So I was trying to calm him down. Okay. 
And um, let me ask you this, the movements that you saw him making, did you see him make any movements like simulate like he was pulling the trigger on a gun or anything like that? Rucker sure didn't get the answer he was hoping for. Anderson said during these episodes, Texas fingers curl up in an unusual way. They actually call it an anatomically kind of a trigger finger. Mm -hmm. His index, middle, and thumb always kind of curl. Later, Rucker doubled down on the boots. So, um, can you tell the jurors, you don't remember wearing some like real decorative boots that kind of um, like had like a little Western flair to them um, that uh, Diane had gotten from Jay Grover? No, sir. And so as you sit here today, you deny wearing Diane's boots at the ranch. 1,000%. I'm a 10 and a half. She's a 7 and a half. That begs the question. Will the defense say if the boots don't fit, you must acquit? After Rucker was finished, Samuel implored McBurney to let him ask Anderson how she felt about the prosecution's tactics, how it had upset her clients and her family. What was going on was a clear effort by the prosecution to claim it, to claim, and to try to convince this jury that they were having sex, and that's why he killed his wife. That's one of the reasons that they're trying to put that in evidence, that he's not, he wasn't deeply in love, that he was... You know, killed, killed his wife so we could get with the masseuse. If the prosecution will stick with the honest truth, it's fine. But when they start making implications that are false, so to convince this jury, had we not called Annie Anderson to the stand, had we not called her to the stand, I guarantee 12 out of 12 jurors would have thought he's having sex with the masseuse. McBurney cited the testimony about Tex being on his back with his shirt off getting a massage and about her wearing Diane's boots. The jury can draw inferences from that, McBurney said. It's confusing what's going on in this situation immediately after Ms. MacGyver's death. Now, if the state wants to go out on a limb and say that's proof that there had been a torrid affair for 100 years, I don't know how credible the jury would find that to be. Not my call to make. That would be the state's call. And that might discredit other things they ask the jury to stretch towards, like the existence of a second will. I don't make those decisions. Here was Rucker's response, and I think we'll hear this refrain in his closing arguments. And to be quite frank with you, um, there is no direct evidence that she had sex with anybody. And so the court is absolutely right. Uh, I would lose all credibility if I stood up in front of this jury in the closing argument and said, oh, the evidence has shown this torrid love affair between, and I'm not going to do that. That's not the evidence in the case. The defense has put his character at issue. And so when um, those witnesses testified about what they saw the defendant doing and the behavior he exhibited in the days after his wife's death, I think it's fair game. It's fair game. Well, if you love your wife so much, why are you getting a massage on the bed that you slept in every night with her for 10 years with your shirt off from somebody who is just your massage, your masseuse. You know, when you should be breathing. I get to make that argument. Then Rucker made a statement I couldn't quite believe. And in the opening statement, we never made a claim that there was a sexual relationship between uh, Annie Anderson and the defendant. We never said that. That is not the theory of the case, and it's not um, the motive that we have pursued in this case. What he didn't say was this. That's certainly what we've been implying and hitting at. To say otherwise is simply absurd. 
Even though McBurney cut Samuel off initially, he ultimately allowed him to ask Anderson how all this had made her feel. Humiliated and angry. Earlier, the defense rather handily disposed of a bizarre allegation made by one of the nurses at Emory during the prosecution's case in chief. You may recall the testimony of nurse Shahinda Saikalwala. I heard him say, and, and this is what I heard, and, and it was in passing, I was passing through, um, that I was cleaning my gun in the bathroom and I shot her. Saikalwala was the only nurse to say that Tex claimed he was cleaning his gun in the bathroom when it went off. This was important because the prosecution claimed in its opening statement that Tex McIver offered six different versions of his story about the shooting. Psychowala's testimony was one of the six. But did Tex really say that? The defense recalled Blair Brown to the stand. She was a nurse at Emory Hospital. Samuel questions her as a security video runs on the large screen above her head. The video shows the activity in the parking lot that night. In it, Brown is holding Diane's right leg and Tex is holding her left leg as Diane is rushed inside the ER in a wheelchair. How close are you to Mr. MacGyver right here? I mean, I, we can see the video, but you're, if he was talking, would you hear him? Yeah, probably 18 inches from him. 18 inches. When Samuel asks his next question, prosecutor Salida Griffin tries to keep the jury from hearing it, but Samuel was undeterred. Did you hear while you were 18 inches away, Tex MacGyver say... Objection. I haven't finished the question. It's leaving. I'm asking whether she heard something. She's not reading anything. He can ask, what is she? Did she hear her say anything? That is not correct. I can ask, did she hear X? It's not suggesting an answer. All eyes then turn to McBurney. I, I, I don't disagree, but I did. <laughs> did you hear Tess MacGyver say, I shot her in the bathroom while I was cleaning the gun. No. That's no, number one. For no, number two, Samuel called Allison Neely, another nurse, to the stand. Neely was pushing the wheelchair into the ER. Samuel asks the same question and gets the same answer. Didn't hear it. The defense also called a state attorney, Stan Smith. He not only drafted the 2006 wills for Diane and Tex, he did legal work for Diane's estate after her death, when Tex was the executor. Also, it's important to note, Smith said the estate put out an ad in the Daily Report asking for any lawyer who had prepared Diane's second will to please come forward. Yes, you're right. No one came forward. Okay, in her first will, Diane bequeathed $350,000 to four people. Here's Amanda Clark Palmer asking Smith about that. At the time that Ms. McIver died, um, was there enough uh, cash in her estate to satisfy the cash bequests listed in her will? No. Smith said he told Tex. Uh, the advice is that you have to sell some assets in order to raise the cash to not only pay the cash bequests, but the expenses the estate is going to incur. Um, and in this case, what uh, assets did you advise to be sold? After we looked over the list of assets, uh, I determined that the assets that probably needed to be sold as soon as possible were uh, Mrs. MacGyver's uh, clothing, her jewelry, and uh, her uh, furs. She had quite an extensive collection of these clothes. To the extent you waited until the next year, they could be out of stock. 
and the value would go down very quickly. Uh, secondly, I understood them to be primarily winter clothes, and you're going to get a much better price if you sell them during the winter than if you wait and try to sell them during the summer, uh, especially with regard to the furs. She had 137 furs. Okay. Yes, 137 furs. Um, and did Mr. McIver take your advice um, to sell the clothing and jewelry and furs? Yes. Clint Rucker cross-examined Smith, and he made the most of it. When you told him, hey, in late October, November, I think you need to sell some items, um, did you tell him he had to sell all of her furs? Did you tell him that? Every last one, all 137 of them. I wouldn't have said that exact thing, but it's if you're going to sell things that the estate doesn't need, why wouldn't you sell all of them at the same time? What about the sentimental value attached to those things? I don't know. I'm sorry? I don't know about the sentimental value as far as he's concerned. Well, he never told you that this was his soulmate. Yes, he did, many times. As to why Tex had to sell all Diane's belongings right away? Okay, so what about the sentimental value that's attached to all these things that you told him he had to sell? Her shoes, her clothing, even the stuff that won in the wintertime. I'm just sorry, I wouldn't have, as the lawyer for the estate, I, I wouldn't have given him advice based on the sentimental value of it. He was getting the ring back, and I think there was might have been some other things. Uh, no, I, I just had to look at it kind of in a way of a business person. We need cash, and these are the best items to sell, and these probably should be the first items you sell, because they may be losing value over time. So that's what I would have told him. He could have told you, no. Listen, it's too soon. I love my wife. In fact, I don't want nobody to touch nothing of hers right now, because it's just too soon. Did he say that to you? No, I am not going to sell these things that belong to my soulmate, my darling, the love of my life. I'm not going to sell these things. Uh, it's too soon. They have too much sentimental value for me. And um, did he say that to you? No, sir. Had he said that to you, would you have refused his wishes? I would have gone along with it. Okay, he's right. He's the executor. I just have to advise him that he has to determine whether he's going to do it. Right. And that's my bottom line. He made the decision to sell these things, didn't he? Well, ultimately, yes, because I advised him to do it, and then he did. Rucker then made one last point. I mean, you know that he even sold the jewelry she was wearing on the night that he shot. Rucker scored some points there, but remember a few weeks ago, seems like months ago, when Angie Brooks took the stand? She'd been a friend of Diane's for more than three decades. Well, she and Diane had the same birthstone, a ruby, and Diane had left Brooks three pieces of jewelry in her will. Brooks testified she never received them. The prosecution showed her the auction house booklet identifying each of Diane's belongings that were being put up for sale. And Brooks identified three pieces of jewelry, they had rubies and diamonds, that she believed had been left to her but were sold during the estate sale. Remember what I said after hearing that, referring to Tex? What kind of person does something like that? Well, the new executor of Diane's estate is Mary Margaret Oliver. She's not only a lawyer, she's a state lawmaker from Decatur. And she brought to court the three pieces of jewelry she said Diane had left for Brooks. 
No, they weren't sold in the auction. Those pieces and the others that Diane had left to her friends had been saved. Here's Mary Margaret Oliver. It is my intent to honor this handwritten list. I do believe this list is in the name of Diane McIver. It's my intent to honor it, and I've notified the people that they're going to be receiving a letter with a special request. As for the three pieces left for Brooks? There's a ring, there are um, earrings, and there's a bracelet. All are, all are ruby and diamonds. It's also important to note that the three pieces saved for Brooks had been appraised for a total value of $83,000. The three pieces the prosecution showed to the jury in the pamphlet were worth a fraction of that. In other words, Tex could have put the more expensive jewelry up for sale and left the far less expensive pieces for Brooks. But he didn't. The defense also called a sleep expert. Dr. David Rye, aptly named, given his occasional wisecracks, explained the various states of sleep and the sleep disorders that Tex McIver has. He was well chosen. Dr. Rye has a sonorous, almost sleepy delivery. Breakdown friend Kevin Morris, a local lawyer, called him Dr. Ambien in a Twitter message. I like that. If you're having sleep problems, just listen to a few hours of Dr. Rye's testimony. Dr. Rye is an unquestioned expert in the field. The bottom line of his testimony, Tex McIver suffers from REM behavior disorder. This means that, unlike most of us, he can physically act out while he's dreaming. That is, he can thrash about with his arms, kick with his legs, maybe even pull the trigger on a loaded 38. Here's defense attorney Amanda Clark Palmer asking Rye about the disorder. When you say acting out the dreams, or maybe physically, how does that manifest in someone who has... Is it referred to as RBD? Rye's answer gives credence to what Annie Anderson said she saw. And I didn't bring any pictures of people, uh, bed partners that have gotten black eyes, uh, broken bones. We've had patients break bones and uh, from falling out of bed or hitting, slugging of bed rails. For example, there's an uh, expert in the world in France who frequently at meetings will show videos of her patient who is a former soccer player for the French national team kicking soccer balls in his sleep and sort of talking about scoring a goal and raising his arms up and cheering uh, within his dreams. This is interesting stuff. When most people sleep, there's an impenetrable wall between the dream and the waking world. Whatever's happening in the dream stays within the dream. If you dream of running, for example, your legs and arms aren't really pumping, your feet aren't slapping the pavement, People with REM behavior disorder have somehow breached that wall between sleep and waking. So, if you dream you're stomping your foot, you might well be doing that, or trying to do it, in reality. So, before we put you to sleep, I'm going to say... Next, on Breakdown. In a long trial, closing arguments are critically important. For the state, I think they have to focus on the critical elements in proving the charges in the indictment. Don't worry about the character stuff, just focus on what they need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt for a conviction. From the defense side, focus on the areas where they've been able to poke holes. Don't try to go over the character stuff. Don't summarize the witness's testimony. Just give your jurors enough information to argue to the other people in the jury room why you should win. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. 
Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Guin, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagor, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and radio. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex McIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada... You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.